0: Thank you, Pastor. I do appreciate the opportunity. Welcome, church. I want to wish each of you a Happy New Year. I know that sometimes that's easier said than lived. Oftentimes there's challenges, there's difficulties that we face. But I pray that this year would be an opportunity that God reveals himself in a new way in your specific life and your experience. It's quite an honor for me to speak to you this morning. Uh, If uh, you're new to Northwest, I'm obviously not Pastor Rob. I'm not an ordained minister. I've not received any type of training from a school of divinity. I'm just a normal guy. I'm a church member. And this is the first time I've ever preached a message. So I'm a little bit nervous, but I'm excited more about myself I am a sinful man I was born of the flesh I lived in accordance to the flesh and by doing so I condemned myself before a holy and righteous judge yet in the place of condemnation Christ provided a way of escape for me John 3:17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that's my story. That's the story of all of the redeemed, saved from death and, and separation and given a title, the title of the son of the most high. So that's the perspective that I am speaking from this morning. In preparation for today, I've been praying for some specific things. I've not been praying that I necessarily do a good job, because I promise you I will stumble over my words. I know that I will lose my spot at least once, and I'll probably break the cardinal rule, and I'll probably go over my allotted time. But the things that I have been praying for, number one, that the things I say are truth. Not based upon my opinion, but it's truth as based upon the Word of God. Secondly, I've been praying that the name of Jesus Christ would be lifted up, it'd be exalted to be made higher because of the words I say. And then, according to John 12 32, when Christ is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. So that's my prayer for this morning that he will be exalted and he will draw you here this morning. So earlier this week, I took my daughter, Madeline. She and I, we went on the search uh, for something at Barnes & Noble. She was looking for a day planner that she could use this uh, year. So as she ventured off to that side of the store, I kind of gravitated toward the things that interest me at the magazine and the newsstand section. So as I'm casually walking and looking at the topics that interest me, there's something that catches my eye on the bottom row. It's a magazine produced by Time Magazine, and the title is this, Jesus, Who Do You Say That I Am? Now, generally, I'm not one who rushes out this time of year to look at Time Magazine to see who their person of the year is. I'm not really caught up into their uh, idea of what popular, uh, popular opinion should be, and I really don't care much about their opinion of my Lord And Savior, but nonetheless, I proceeded to pick it up and look through the magazine. What I find is fairly interesting. It has a review of a lot of imagery. There is art that is reflective of the person of Christ throughout the centuries, there's geography of the places that Jesus walked, where he lived, but most importantly, it is a review of all the various ways that the over two billion followers of Christ worship him throughout the world. And I find that very interesting. So I think that the question that Time Magazine posed is a good question for us. Who do we say that Jesus really is? How do we frame our perspective of Christ Is that frame of reference, is it accurate? Is it appropriate? Does our perspective of Christ place limits onto the truth of who he really is? Now, does our traditions, does our culture, do our customs, do our practices, do any of those things put a box around him? Now, I'm not discounting traditions and methods of how we can bring reverence to Christ. But if we rely on those things solely, we will have a very veiled view of who he really is. So on the account of one thing we can count on with human experience is that over time, culture, it will change. It will rise and fall, but there is something that is unchanged, one stable source of truth. It is the word of God. As declared in Isaiah 40, verse 8 the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God, it will stand forever. In this passage, the prophet is not comparing God to horticulture or anything that we see in nature, he is expressing that despite the passing of time, the changing of seasons, the rise and fall of human effort, of nation states, of philosophies, of ways of belief, none of those things will affect the word of God and related to that, nothing will affect and change God's character. It will always endure. So when we frame our image of Christ, it must always be entirely based upon what the Word of God tells us. And this really is the centerpiece of what this sermon series is going to be revealing to us. We're going to search and observe how all through Scripture we see the fingerprints of the Lord Jesus Christ, specifically in the Old Testaments. Some examples are faint foreshadowings, but others are bold pronouncements, unmistakably clear of the Messiah Christ. But in each example, it will reveal a deeper context as to who he is and how that impacts us as individuals and us collectively as the church. So then we have to ask the question What do we at Northwest, how do we view scripture? How do we hold scripture? What is it in its basic foundational understanding? The written scriptures were penned from individuals who were specifically and intentionally filled with the spirit of God. Oftentimes they were the dedicated messengers of God, but always divinely divinely inspired to write as he moved them. In the Old Testament, God moved through around 40 different authors. In the New Testament, he inspired nine separate authors. Each individual author observed and then reflected the revelation in distinct ways, in unique styles. These texts employed various literary disciplines, including narrative, an account of historical events, genealogy, poetry. And prophecy and others. And all of these recordings were done over hundreds, even thousands of years, and these were separated individuals. When joined together, they tell a unified and an intimately interconnected story of God and his relationship to us. So, with that introduction laid out, let us begin by turning to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. Now, this scripture, it's going to serve as our jumping off point this morning. But we're going to look at many others as the morning progresses. At Northwest, it is our custom to stand whenever we read God's word. Why is that? Our standing is an outward sign that we agree that the word we are receiving is the truth. In a day and an age where truth is said to be relative or truth is flexible, we stand on the truth of God's word. Let's read this. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 through 20. He, speaking of Christ, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace through the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. You can be seated. So that takes us to our first point. Christ sovereign at creation. Now that title it fits nicely on a on a, a, a pamphlet or a brochure, but here's a, a deeper, more expanded way to say it. Christ is the preexistent, transcendent, sovereign embodiment of God and the creator of all things. That, that, was, that was a big statement. Let me say it again. Christ is the preexistent, transcendent, sovereign embodiment of God and the creator of all things. What exactly does that mean? Well, let's unpack it. Jesus first is pre existent. By, defi- by definition, that means existent in a former state or a previous to something else. In the case of Jesus, before he was born, before he lived on this earth, he existed in spirit form as a member of the Godhead, like we sang this morning, one of the three distinct members of the Trinity. And verse 15, it's plainly spoken. He is the image of the invisible God. If you look at Christ, you are looking at God. For in him, excuse me, and this supported later in Colossians chapter two, verse nine, it says this. For in him, the, full, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means that every measure of God is completely enveloped, completely embodied in the person of Jesus, not just his spirit form, but also in his human incarnation. and we will see later this morning also in his glorified body, in which he will forever reign. While on earth, Jesus spoke many times of his deity, in relationship to his preexistence. John chapter three. Chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 16, all of these include references of Jesus referring to himself as as having descended down from heaven, from God's side to accomplish the will of his father. Now, verse 16, it takes it another layer deep. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers, And all things were created through him and for him. Now, I've got to make a confession for me, a deficiency in me. I too often frame my view of Christ not in this way. I generally attribute those attributes of the creator to God the Father, God Yahweh. But it's clear This attribute is deserving to be of Christ. He is the ultimate. He is the creator of all things. Let's see what the writer of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. Long ago, and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his spirit, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this is what I want to hone in on. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Church, can we get a glimpse? Can we get a concept of the majesty, the indescribable power that resides in the person of Jesus Christ? Psalms 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and the breath of his mouth all their hosts. And it goes deeper. Proverbs 8, through 31 It speaks of the wisdom of the creator. It's not talking about the kind of wisdom we may say, see on earth that's done in a, a business dealing or wisdom that's applied by an experienced judge of the law. No, this wisdom is the wisdom that is the incalculable wisdom. It's an it's unimaginable in its depth. And it's the summation of the entire physical world. Let me read this to you. Proverbs eight twenty two. And the Lord possessed me. Now when it says me or I, it's talking about wisdom. It's kind of talking in the third person here. But the Lord possessed me, wisdom, at the beginning of his work, at the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I, Wisdom was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, and when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I, wisdom, was brought forth. Before he had made the earth and all of its fields, the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. And when he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made the skies above, When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limit. So that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him. Like a master workman. I was his delight daily. Rejoicing before him always. Rejoicing in his inhabited world. Now here is. He's using fairly poetic language in this description. But the time that this proverb was written by Solomon almost 3,000 years ago, the level of scientific understanding that we have today wasn't there. The mathematical equations that begin to explain the law of gravity or the speed of light or the existence of the conversion of atomic matter, these things were not even conceived of yet. But the writer of Proverbs understood the incomprehensible depth and complexity of the universe in quantities that are too far to even fathom. Christ, in the form of God, imagined and he designed the physical world. Each and every detail of the molecular system that comprises the building blocks of our world, he created it. He worked not only in the atomic level, but his workmanship is evident as we observe every range, every scale through the natural world up to the vast expanses of the universe. He established the invisible forces of gravity that tether the moon and its relationship to the earth. It governs the tidal movements. It's the perfectly tuned motion of our earth. All of these things Are incredible examples of God's skill, God's care, God's knowledge. It's comparable to that of a mechanical watch. The hundreds of inner working pieces doesn't even start to explain the depth of the knowledge and the wisdom of our Creator Christ. Psalms nineteen, it's true, it's accurate. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. The final statement that I want to talk about in this section is that Christ, he's not only the designer and the controller of the physical world, but also the realm of the spiritual world. He is transcendent beyond the physical limits of the created systems. That means that Christ is not bound by time, or by space, or by knowledge, information, or data. He exists beyond those limits as he pleases. Before the creation account in Genesis, there was no form of matter, or any measurement of time, or any distance, the way we know it. He, in exact unity with the Father and the Spirit, dwelt in perfect harmony, of which there was no beginning. Christ is not a created being. He has always been and will always be. And as such, he is sovereign in his position and his authority over all creation. There is so much more to say, but we've got to move on. Our second point is this. Christ sovereign at revelation. A more expanded description might sound like this. Christ is preeminent and the sovereign embodiment of God at the end of days. So to shift a transition from framing our view of Christ as creator to the view of Christ at Revelation, let's turn to chapter 1 of Revelation. In this context, Christ is preeminent. According to Webster's Dictionary, that means having paramount rank, dignity, Or importance. Some of the notable synonyms for the word preeminent would include central, dominant, greatest, highest, master, supreme. All of these are descriptions of the person of Jesus at the end of days. Let's read the account Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 10. I, talking about John the Revelator, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And then verse 12, and then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs on his head, they were white like wool like snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like that of the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held the seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now this account of Christ, we can see many powerful explanations that speak To his sovereign power. And I want to touch on some of these. Verse 13 describes him as the one. As like one of the son of man. Christ here is in his risen form. In his glorified body. He was raised in this body. He ascended in this body. He will return victorious in this body. And he will reign forever. In this glorified body. But for us. It is the resemblance of the sacrificed Christ. It bears the marks of his love and his sacrifice for us. And it goes on in verse 13 he is clothed in a white robe and a golden sash. This signifies both his royalty, his kingly status, as well as that he is the only righteous judge. Romans 14, 1 through 12 says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess to God. Verse 14, it describes his hair on his head as being white like wool. This is emphasizing his absolute purity and that he offers to others This same form of purity as foreshadowed in Isaiah 1, 18. Though your sins like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they were red like crimson, they shall be white like wool. Going further in verse 14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. He sees all. He knows all nothing is hidden from his view both the wicked and the righteous deeds all things are revealed to the blazing eyes of the righteous judge hebrews 4:13 says no and no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account but like i said not only to the wicked The blazing eyes are watchful to provide help to those in need. Psalm 139, 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light becomes night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. For the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you, the blazing eyes of Christ. And in verse 15, his feet, they're like a burnished bronze. They're refined in a furnace. He has been tested and he has endured. And having been put through the fire, he emerges standing strong. And from that strength, his judgment cannot be avoided. It cannot be overpowered. He is the final word. John 5, 22 through 24, for the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son for that All may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Going further, verse 15, His voice is like the sound of many waters. Christ is relentless. He is unstoppable. Nothing can resist against the movement of his majesty. The psalmist said this, Psalms 29, three through four. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord, it is powerful. The voice of the Lord, it's full of majesty. And I love this, verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. In verse 16, his right hand, it holds the seven stars. We've already talked about how God, Christ, holds every aspect of the universe in his control. But more than that, referencing back to our original passage in Colossians 1, verse 18, he is the head of the body and of the church. These seven stars are foreshadowing the angels who would deliver Christ's message to the seven churches. Christ will hold you fast, church, in the unbreakable strength of his hand of salvation. John 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, for no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, that'll be important, the father is the one who draws my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand i and the father are one further in verse 16 from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and we know this well hebrews 4:12 for the word of god it's alive it's active It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces the division of the soul and the spirit of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and the intentions of men. There's nothing we can say that can convict a heart. It is only through the word of God, moving through the spirit of God, that we can act. So church, we've got to remember that promise. And just be the ones who speak. Speak in our words, but more importantly, speak in our deeds. And allow Christ to move in power through your lives. And lastly, in verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. His brilliance is beyond measure. There is no one like him. He is the source of all light, and all life, and is the full radiance of God. John chapter one, verse four. In him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So, John the Revelator, when he sees this powerful image of the Almighty Christ, it is no surprise that he falls to his feet as though he has died. But look at the comfort that Christ offered him here. In verse 17, but he laid his hand on me and he said, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died And behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Church, Christ is alive forevermore, and he holds all of the keys. He is victorious. He is sovereign and will reign as such forever. And we can rest in comfort in the promise of this almighty Christ. So you might say, well, Matt, I, I see this image of Christ, the sovereign Lord at creation. And I know that one day Christ will reign, will be victorious over sin. But right now, in my situation, in my life, I'm looking around and I just don't see evidence of his sovereignty, his control, his lordship. Instead, when I look around, I see a broken world. Things are getting dark and even darker. The world is upside down. The righteous things, they're called evil. And the evil things are lifted up and celebrated. It doesn't feel like Christ is sovereign. Or maybe you know these things, the sovereignty, control of God, but in your mind, in your logic, but in your heart, perhaps you have bondage to something else other than the lordship of Christ. Well, there is a word for you this morning as well that Christ is sovereign at the cross. A deeper way to say it is that Christ is sovereign specifically in your life because of his finished work at the cross. Christ is sovereign specifically in your life because of his finished work at the cross. As we turn to John chapter 6, allow me to give a little bit of context as to what is Happening, what has happened in this passage working up to it. This is early in Jesus' ministry. And he's already asserted exactly who he is to the people. And he is substantiating these claims through his miracles. Now, starting back in chapter 2 of John, these stories, we all know them well. Let me give a quick account to them. We've seen his command over the molecular elements. As he changed water into wine, we've seen the omnipotent knowledge of Christ in the account of the Samaritan woman who he knew every wrong she had committed. He had offered her the water of eternal life. We've seen the healing of a lame man who had not been able to pick himself up off the dirt for 38 years. We've seen how Jesus created brand new matter out of nothing as he multiplied five loaves and two fishes to feed the 5,000. We've seen that Jesus has command over gravity and the properties of water as he was walking across the raging sea to join his disciples in the boat. And in this same passage, We've seen how Jesus instantaneously removed them from the rough storm at sea. And suddenly they were standing at peace on the shore. Showing Christ's transcendence over the physical space. With each one of these amazing miracles, more and more people were coming to listen to Christ. Entire towns would be captivated by Jesus when he came to them. There was even a movement where they wanted to force him, make him king over the region. From an outsider looking in, this, you would think that Jesus's ministry is expanding at a pace that is unimaginable, it's unstoppable. But this method was not the will of the Father. This was not the path that God would use to reconcile man to himself. So the day after the feeding of the 5,000, the multitude of seekers, they came to Jesus. And when they questioned him, Jesus gave an interesting response. John chapter 6, verse 26. Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you, you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now at this point, there starts to be an exchange, a dialogue between the seekers and Jesus. The seekers, by the way, had been infiltrated by the religious leaders, and they were searching in any way possible To set Jesus up so they could accuse him and put him to death for what they saw as blasphemy. Despite his deity being on display, they started to grumble in the same way that their ancestors grumbled when in the wilderness. When God provided them food in the form of manna, yet they were unsatisfied with that provision. Christ's true message they could not grasp. Their minds were entrapped on the physical and not the spiritual. They were casting this in a light from the Mosaic law. But Christ was setting up something entirely different, a replacement to the law that only he could fulfill. Now soon the grumblings turned to doubt, fueled by gossip. And they would say to themselves, Well, he says that he descended from God above, but we know his father, Joseph, and we we know his mother. We know where he came from. There started to be disbelief about the claims of Christ. And throughout this exchange, we see further development of blindness, of darkness, of opposition that Satan has applied to the eyes of the people's heart. And then Jesus clarified concerning the bread that they must eat. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give him for the life of the world is my flesh. At this statement, opposition and resistance, it really starts to mount. The so called followers of Jesus, they start to fall away in rapid succession. Out of their spiritual blindness, they are confused concerning the same. Is he telling us we have to eat his flesh? Is Jesus talking about cannibalism? What does this mean? But then Jesus goes even deeper into an explanation that is difficult. It is painful. It's even offensive in its language. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh And drinks, my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is the true food. And my blood is the true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks, my blood, abides in me. And I in him. And as the Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Going to verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In verse 66, after this, many of the disciples turned back they no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to his 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? We ha- Who has the words of eternal life? You have it. And we have believed that you and have come to know that you are the Holy One. Jesus answered him, did I not choose you, the 12, Yet even one of you is a devil. As he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, would go on to betray him. At the beginning of chapter 6, just the day previous, there were literally thousands who were willing to follow Jesus. But in just a short 36 hours, they all walked away except for the 12, and even one of them was of the devil. So you might say, Matt, why in the world are you looking at this passage as an example of Christ being sovereign and being in control? By all measures I see, this is an account showing a complete collapse of control and a collapse of influence, Many would say that it even appears that the minds and the attitudes of sinful man is taking command. That man is sovereign instead of God. And more than that, it just feels like Satan is winning in this text. From an earthly mindset, it just seems foolish. But 1 Corinthians 4.27 Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You see, at this particular exchange, the time frame that Christ gave this graphic description to these Jews, this was the time of the feast of the Passover. He was speaking to them in a covenant language. They should have understood it, but they couldn't. Their minds were blinded due to the darkness of their heart, but God was speaking powerfully to those whom he chooses to enlighten. We must remember God is the one who draws. Let us look back at the instruction that was handed down from God to Moses at the first Passover. Passover. Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of the month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house. A lamb for a household. And verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, who may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall take it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head, its legs, and its inner parts, the whole sacrifice. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning shall be burned. Now, listen to this. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand you shall eat it in haste it is the lord's passover in this account of exodus the children of israel had been in forced slavery for generation after generation although they were the descendants of abraham and the heirs to the unique covenant promise of god they lived under bondage and they lived under hardship Despite the multiple powerful signs of God, his power over the Egyptians through the plagues, those had failed to set them free from the captor. But it was this last judgment, the judgment of the death angel, that God painted a beautiful picture of what would otherwise be a difficult and a tragic an ugly practice, taking a beautiful perfect lamb, slaying it, representing the cost of sin that was rightly owed to each person in that house. From this sacrificial act, you take the blood and you apply it as a banner over your family, over your household, declaring to the death angel, the payment of sin has already been satisfied here. Next, taking the meat from the lamb and consuming it. All of it. Providing you the life-giving nourishment and strength. It is this act that the Israelite, they are quickly preparing for their bondage to be broken. They have the shoes on their feet. The staff is in their hand. They are ready to move. The curse that has been reality for so many generations, is about to be lifted. And lastly, all of this is given not by your effort, and certainly not by what they deserve, but from the merciful hand of the Lord. So with this proper and appropriate context of substitutional sacrifice, let us re-examine the offer that Jesus is presenting in John chapter six by making some simple correlations among the verses that we see. There exists a parallel between the verses 54 and the verse 40. In 54, Jesus uses intentionally offensive descriptive language on how one must obtain eternal life. And the promise of being raised to reign with Christ at the end of days. What did it require? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood. However, in verse 40, the same result is offered to whoever looks on the sun and believes. You see, the passage in this passage, Jesus is saying to those who will listen, and to those whom are drawn by the Father. That eating his flesh, drinking his blood, they are figurative ways of saying, look at me, take my words, accept them, believe them, trust them, treasure them, and allow them to be nourishment for your soul. When you do, this is the point at which the complete sacrifice of Christ is transferred onto you. It releases the death sentence that came with sin, but more than that, it releases you from the bondage of sin. Christ's light and his life become what transforms your life. And in doing so, he is sovereign. He is sovereign in your life. King of your individual hearts and minds. You see in John 6, most of the Jews rejected Christ, except for a handful of his disciples. But in doing so, this grace of God has been extended to all people, to all nations, to all tribes, to the Jews first, and also to the Gentiles If you see and believe. So just as it was said then, it is true today. It is true right in this room. Christ calls us to see and believe. As we move to the close of our service, there's probably three types of people that might be in this room. Perhaps today's the first day that you've really come to see who Christ really is because God has revealed it to you. He's made it evident to you. And you've seen that Christ is sovereign, that he loves you, he sought you out, he laid down his own life as a sacrifice to redeem you from the curse of sin in this life and the curse of destruction in the life to come? So the answer for you is simple. See and believe. That will be the first step in the journey of discovering who Christ is and how he can richly bring blessing to your life. Perhaps you're another kind of person You've experienced the salvation of Christ. But with a cycle of another year, it's just another reminder of all of your repeated failings of trying to please God. But yet sin continues to have a capture, have a bondage in your heart and mind. Listen when I say this to you. Christ is ready to take your burden Your failings, and to wash you again in the grace that He offers, the forgiveness that He offers. And He's also offering to infill you with His Spirit so that you can walk not in your power, but in the power of Christ. The invitation is the same to you see and believe and respond to His sovereignty. Maybe there's one more group. Maybe that you've lived, your life is evidence. It is proof that the presence of Christ powerfully transforms your life and you've walked with him in sweetness for so many years, but yet your physical life is growing more and more difficult. The Savior is here, more able to help than he was even before to continue to be your source of strength, to draw your heart even closer in intimacy with him. So whoever you are, the message has been provided. God is seeking you. God is sovereign. Open up your life. Open up your heart to his sovereign control. There's going to be pastors at the front. If you sense a drawing of the Lord, they can talk with you. We're going to sing just two verses of a hymn that reflects the heart of these people. Let's sing. Come to the Lord. Make him sovereign Lord today.